My name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And we continue our month of selling out. And what is a bigger sellout than doing an episode on Jean-Luc Godard? It's not really a sellout topic, is it? Jean-Luc Godard? I think that people, when they see Jean-Luc Godard, they're like, oh, that seems interesting, because I know what that is. He's a brand name. Exactly. But we're not talking about one of his most famous things this week we're pulling a bait and switch just like godard himself does interesting so longtime listeners will know that john luc godard was one of the subjects of one of our very first episodes mm-hmm. uh, and we're returning to him all these years later because there's a monument that we have to tackle in his career in 1960 godard revolutionized the medium of cinema with a little movie called breathless but for the true godard fans his summative achievement was histoire du cinema what is histoire du cinema Histoire du Cinema is a multi-part essay film where Godard takes all of the movies that made an impact on him, all the ones that he feels are historically valuable, and remixes them into not just a history of cinema, but a way to perceive cinema itself. Spanning from 1989 to 1997, that's how long it took for him to put this magnum opus together. I hope you like to see images over other images. It runs eight episodes, totaling 266 minutes. Each episode has a theme, although sometimes it's a little loose. It's probably only really well known by people who are serious cinephiles, but to serious cinephiles, its reputation is sort of similar to Finnegan's Wake for literature. Mm. It's long, it's dense, it's difficult to understand, and to enjoy it, it helps to have a deep and lifelong bond with the art form. I think it is necessary to enjoy it because otherwise you will be looking at images going, I don't know what this is. Hence, the meaning of them interacting with each other adds up to nothing for me. So to be honest, I don't really know what I think of Histoire du Cinema. I've seen it all the way through twice now. Uh, I love Godard. I even love Lake Godard. Histoire du Cinema is a very challenging object, and I'm hoping we can maybe work out some of our feelings here. I think we need to build up to the point where he reaches Histoire du Cinema for people that, you know, Godard makes his fun movies, and then, according to some history, he seemingly dies and doesn't do anything. (laughs) (laughs) Entire books can and have been written cataloging every single reference in Histoire du Cinema. I have a book right here in front of me, Jean-Luc Godard's Cinema historian by michael witt and it is a difficult read (laughs) yeah i was flipping through that this week myself and if you have the time and patience and inclination to chart every single reference in the movie figure out what every single juxtaposition is supposed to mean that's great for those of us though who have a basic understanding of godard's life and trajectory i think i'm comfortable right now with just sort of stepping back and looking at it as a total work and sussing out what seem to be the general themes of mm-hmm. it we know that john luc godard in the 50s loved american movies he was a film critic for cahier du cinema alongside francois truffaut eric romare all those guys, they elevated American popular cinema to an art form. People like Hitchcock, Hawks, Samuel Fuller. And then they became filmmakers in the 1960s. For Godard, that was the period when he became politically radicalized. He became disillusioned with American cinema. He saw it as a tool of colonial oppression, a tool of capitalist propaganda. And famously, he tried to create a new kind of Marxist revolutionary cinema in the late 60s and early 70s that would shock people out of their complacency. That didn't work. Obviously, he abandoned some of his revolutionary fervor, but what he didn't abandon was his disappointment in American cinema and cinema itself. 
He felt that it had become a fallen, decadent medium. He never abandoned the idea that it was this tool of capitalism and colonialism. But do you think that he still had warm memories about the cinema that he had experienced and had talked about so much when he was a critic and coming up into it? I think yes. And you see a lot of that in Histoire du Cinema. There's an episode in it on Alfred Hitchcock, for example, where uh, you you see how much he still loves Alfred Hitchcock, and if there are things, if there's something that's interesting about his story of cinema, if there's something that makes it more than just a lament, it's that ambiguity. And going up to the documentary version of Eastwald Cinema, Godard was always trying to figure out a way to express these kind of ideas about the history of cinema. There's a famous series of lectures that he did in Canada, and there you can find a book about it. Uh, there's an English version that came out a number of years ago. Pretty that, recently, that's yeah. That's annotated, where it's just these long, rambling discussions that Godard has about oftentimes a film that he liked and one of his own films. Jean-Luc Godard is, I mean, I've been reading interviews with him for years now. I often don't understand what he's saying. Mm -hmm. His mind works like nobody else's mind works. He makes bizarre connections. Oftentimes, even when he's translated, it's like he's speaking another language. And sometimes it is a little bit of sizzle, no steak there, <laughs> where he will give you multiple versions of an answer. So there's nothing you can actually grab onto. For a long time, he wanted to do something in the film medium that would be this like personal history of cinema. There were a number of inciting incidents that led to it, and I think we'll get into some of those later. One of the major ones is the easy availability of film history through video technology. You know, one of the things that I think is most appealing and likable about Godard is he's always excited about the new possibilities of new uh, moving image media. You look at a movie like Film Socialism and it has cell phone video footage in it, you know? And it also gave him the opportunity to juxtapose these images together, which is something that he always wanted to do, even in those early Canadian lectures. And they told him, eh, you know, it's not financially viable for us to do that. So you'll have to figure out a different way to and, go about this. Yeah, and, and video was... Finally gave him yeah. the opportunity to, as he does many times in these documentaries, slowly lean on the uh, fade bar so it kind of like jerks through it because you're not doing it smoothly, which anybody who's ever been in a TV broadcasting studio has done. And he's obviously interested in video as just this like big soup, like all of film history exists here. now. Yeah, all of, is available. All of film history exists and is available and is totally undifferentiated. In Histoire du Cinema, you will see some of the canonical Hollywood classics. You will also see hardcore pornography. You'll Basically what Godard had in his video collection. <laughs> yeah. You'll see atrocity footage. Yes. And all of that is the same. Godard's like, I need the budget to buy uh, these pornos for my documentary. <laughs> Anne-Marie, this is simply for research. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it's this collage of sound and images. There's a lot of cryptic narration by Godard, which every now and then becomes suddenly lucid. Like, a, a lot of it, I really don't understand what he's saying. But every now and then, he'll say something just clearly and directly. But it'll be like, that Histoire du Cinema. And then you'll hear, Histoire du Cinema, Cinema, Cinema. <laughs> you, you get also a lot of sounds and images from a number of other artistic media. You hear a lot of classical music. You see paintings. There's an episode where he hired an actor to play himself that he is coaching through the narration mm. we've heard previously in the other parts. And that's an example of some of the limited, newly shot footage for this. So Juliette Binoche shows up. 
Julie Delpy shows up. Yeah, all that footage that has those actors in it. Didn't he shoot it in like 1989? Like it was shot very early on and then he put it throughout as he was working on it. Yeah, that makes sense. There's always something happening. Like I was never bored watching this. (laughs) Well, I don't know if I'll say that. Okay, (laughs) okay, fair enough, fair enough. I was never bored, although there were times when I was frustrated, for sure. Uh, Sometimes it's funny. There are a couple of moments when I found it actually moving. There were a lot of times when I was confused and frustrated and uh, even even angry. Well, when he like juxtaposes, uh, I don't know, Charlie Chaplin and Hitler, it's like, all right, Godard, we, we get it. And then he'll cut to atrocity footage and you're like, oh, OK. Well, OK, this is one of the challenges of historic cinema and all like Godard, I would say, which is it presents itself as very imposing and very you need a whole reader's guide to understand Mm. this. But then if you stop to consider some of the juxtapositions, you sometimes think, well, maybe there is nothing here. Maybe Mm. this is or maybe if there is something here, it's as simple and base as it looks. And I would like to maybe suggest there's a third way. Maybe he's (laughs) good. Well, but maybe 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 he's not the ultimate genius or the ultimate fraud. Maybe mm. he's somewhere in so the So maybe middle. he has a few ideas here or there. I would give you that. Yeah, and, uh, you know... <laughs> no, Chaplin's sitting in the cinema looking at people jerking each other off. <laughs> uh, okay, that was one of my favorite moments. That's one of the few times Godard has actually made me laugh, which is this scene he took from A King in New York when Chaplin is in the front row and he's watching a widescreen movie and his head is craning from side to side and he superimposes over it like a dick pumping in a in a woman's you know what do you think that's Godard saying that cinema has debased itself to this point that it has gone to the you know purity of prostitution I mean probably yeah he's <laughs> yes, probably saying something like that when it's shown on screen like that then there's that moment I mean did, did you remember the moment where you see I, I'm focusing so much on the hardcore stuff, even though there's only like a small amount uh, of it. There's a lot of hardcore stuff. Like he puts it throughout almost every episode. You get some pumping and sucking or well, blowjobs. There's that one where you see you see a threesome scene and then you see Schlitzy from Freaks yes. la- laughing. And then you see a body being thrown into a mass grave. Mm-hmm. Those three, one after another. And I don't I don't quite know what to do with that juxtaposition, but it's there. Uh, in my notes I have here, as <laughs> I started watching it, Godard, man, he looks like Groucho Marx. <laughs> Sucking back that big cigar, sitting at a typewriter. Oh, man, if you don't want imposing sound, do not watch this because there's a like the sound of the typewriter throughout this. I watched it with headphones Headphones on. Yeah, like like big noise canceling headphones. And it was a great experience. But that was because Godard was actually very adamant that this film be presented in stereo Mm -hmm. and that when it first went out, it was presented in mono and that really pissed him off. And I think rightly so Mm -hmm. i mean he uh, is always doing crazy interesting things with sound and if you listen to it with noise canceling headphones it's a great experience and all of these separate parts of the documentary are all introduced by people that inspired him like the first one says pour mary mirson who was one of the main heads of la cinematique française Uh, she was the wife of henri langlois and she did a bunch of the administrative stuff and was very involved in that organization every now and then throughout i mean one of the things i like about it is it has no pretense to objectivity at all and it has no real interest in being totally coherent either like this is a tour through a man's brain. It's a tour through a crazy man's brain who's making bizarre connections all the time. And, you know, Godard, when interviewed about it, would say stuff like, I want people to not think of the history of cinema as one thing, but as multiple things, which, you know, the documentary says over and over again, histoire de cinema, histoire has an S. 
Yeah. It's more than one story. It's not just one. But which I think is a good idea. I mean, there are many ideas throughout this that are good and interesting. And his approach where cinema is just this like gigantic smorgasbord. And this is how his brain is connecting it together. And you can see obviously what his blind spots are. His conception of cinema is very North America and Europe. Mm-hmm. That's kind of all he knows. And um, it was the stuff that he saw when he was growing up. Like yeah. that, when he said he saw cinema, it's like, my story, what I saw. Which, which is fine, I think, because this is, yeah, it's his cinema. There's mm. no objectivity here. This There's is a what lot of clips from Godard films throughout these as well. <laughs> like, I, I love that touch where it's like, <laughs> oh, uh, woe is me. I've devoted my life to this fallen medium. I am corrupt. Uh, by the way, I'm a huge figure in the history of cinema. <laughs> yeah, look at all these clips. Look at this scene from Keep Your Right Up. <laughs> I got oh, that, the, that, the guitar film we all love. I got the scene with the hands. I got the scene where it's me and I'm jumping into the back window of a car. All the all the scenes from Keep Your Right Up. For people that don't know what Keep Your Right Up is, it's a late Pierre Godard where he does his best to do a Jerry Lewis impersonation. Yeah, there are some scenes in that movie inspired by Cracking Up. And if that makes you go, well, I gotta see it, good luck to you, is what I'll say. <laughs> so let's talk about the Holocaust stuff, because... One of the big things that inspired this was Claude Landsman's Shoah. Shoah, if you don't know it, is this eight-hour Holocaust film that's composed of interviews with anyone who had any proximity to the Nazi death camps, including Jewish survivors, ex-Nazis, but mostly people who were just around the camps. And the big thing about Shoah is you don't see any atrocity footage from the Holocaust. And that's the whole idea of the documentary is that you're hearing these people talk about it. So you're disconnected from it, but you do see the places that it happened. Yeah. You see the railways, you see the, the grassy fields. And by hearing all this testimony, the grassy fields start to feel corrupt. You start to feel the evil present, even in our modern world. This is the opposite of Godard's approach. Godard regards the Holocaust as not only one of the key 20th century historical events, the key 20th century historical event, but also the moment that cinema lost its innocence and failed. First of all, he says cinema is the great art form of the 20th century, but it did not stop the Holocaust. It did not even try to stop the Holocaust. Really, uh, the only Hollywood movie, it seems, that he cites frequently is Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. But aside from that, there was no resistance. But then, and here's where things get particularly incendiary. This is where he gets particularly provocative. We've all seen the footage of the liberated death camps, you know, the mass graves, the emaciated survivors. What we haven't seen is footage of the Holocaust itself. That is the actual killing of the inmates. Now, Claude Landsman has said that if he had access to such footage, he would destroy it. Godard is offended by that notion, he would say that such footage, first of all, he believes such footage must have at one point existed because they documented everything. And if it does exist, it should be preserved as proof of what happened. However, nobody wanted to see it. So cinema turned a blind eye to the Holocaust before, during, and after. And if I can just quote Richard Brody in his biography of Godard, which is definitely a key document for me for understanding all this stuff, he said, This failure, according to Godard, signified the abandonment of cinema's documentary essence in favor of its spectacular side, which he took to be Hollywood's specialty, and the post-war success of the American cinema, which in fact captured a large share of the European market, meant to him that the intrinsically historiographic aspect of the cinema was also destroyed, because in his view, the essence of America was its lack of history. 
he considered the renunciation of documentary and history to represent nothing less than the end of cinema. Okay. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that's what I got to say about that. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a lot to take in. And, um, you know, do I agree with Godard? I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I, Godard, I, hey, we got cell phones now. All that stuff is documented if you want to see it. That's true. That's, I guess cinema has changed a lot. Yeah. Now we have people recording people like cops strangling black mm. protesters. That's right. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of the time it gets out there, it doesn't change a thing either. That's true. Uh, here, Here's kind of where I agree with Godard to a certain extent. Well, okay. Well, I'll say that I guess a lot depends on how much importance you place on cinema mm. and on the documentary image. Obviously, he places a great deal. He thinks there's a great moral responsibility there. Would you consider Godard a documentary filmmaker at any point in his, of his career? That's a good question. To the extent that all films are documentaries of their yes. own making, yes. <laughs> yes. That's what Godard would say. <laughs> I mean, he is somebody who is dealing a lot in recycled images. The in, And also what's happening now. Like, if you look at his second feature film, Le Carabinier, which is the one about the uh, French-Argentinian War... Yeah. That could be considered a documentary in Godard's eyes. But he's somebody who, I think he even he would say this, cannot really see outside of cinema. He cannot see outside the cinematic image. Cinema is, for him, one of the key things that mediates reality. And, you know, I guess he considers himself... I, I guess it can, depends on what you would call a documentary film. He would consider this a documentary film, even though it's it's the exact opposite of Landsman's approach to documentary. It's just, it's recycled images in provocative new forms. What's interesting to consider about that thesis that Godard is making is that cinema became all about the Holocaust, basically after this documentary was completed. In the 90s. And they, they couldn't get away from it, yeah. Yeah, and uh, Godard didn't like that. No, he did not. And I, I think he re- he regarded, well, Godard regarded Schindler's List as this is American colonialism. Mm. This is Spielberg buying European history, which I also don't agree with him on, I th- but that's his that's his point of view. Mm-hmm. Or if I, at least I think it's much more complicated than he thinks it is. But what is cinema's responsibility to the world? I mean, I know that Hollywood cinema is part of an American capitalist system, and the only reason Charlie Chaplin was able to make The Great Dictator is because he was rich enough to fund it and release it entirely himself. That's why the Three Stooges was able to make the short that they did. They were the uh, other Hollywood filmmakers who tackled Hitler. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You could say, is cinema a failure in that case? I mean, when you put it like that, maybe it kind of does sound like a failure. I mean... But uh, what was cinema's goals then? So it is to change... Well, I mean, if if you've got this giant moral atrocity that's happening in the world and cinema is the number one art form, cinema is the greatest art form, but it's there's nothing in the marketplace that would make it financially viable to create a resistant cinema to the Holocaust. In fact, Hollywood responds with an escapist cinema instead while all this is going on. I mean, maybe it's reasonable of him to say, therefore, uh, cinema is a failure. Well, I wouldn't say cinema is a failure. I would say that the economic reality of cinema or any entertainment is morally bankrupt. In which case, yes, I agree with that. Yeah, but, you know, maybe the problems are bigger than cinema. <laughs> I mean, that's what it also is. It's like yeah. capitalism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's it's sad that it's sad that cinema hasn't and can't do more than it's done. Uh, you know, Godard, I, I'm not sure how exactly how I'm transitioning to this, but something I'll say is I think there are a lot of really interesting points in this. There is something about Godard's cryptic, poetic approach to all of this that 
lets him get away with a lot of lazy thinking at times. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, in his cryptic way, he draws a parallel between Germany's failed attempt at world domination and Hollywood's successful attempt at world domination. And I think you could say that that's a false equivalence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but because he sort of presents it in this cryptic way with a lot of, you know, a lot of alleged wit and a lot of stuff flashing on the screen, you know, he kind of gets away with it because you don't know exactly what he's saying and how serious exactly he's saying it. You can interpret it whichever way you want, yeah. depending on how high of a uh, plateau you hold Godard. <laughs> so I think that's probably my biggest issue with Godard as a filmmaker and a thinker is that to a certain degree, I mean, I love him. I love a lot of these crazy experiments that he does. I think he's a great filmmaker. I, I do think he is guilty of using obfuscation to let himself off the hook for some lazy thinking. So what are some beautiful images that you saw in Eastwald Cinema, though? Oh, uh, let's start with you. What did you like? Uh, I just enjoyed the way that he not juxtaposed images, because a lot of the times it would happen, I'd be like, oh, I recognize that. Well, I don't know what that is. Oh, I know that. So <laughs> it would be like, I need that kind of deep reference to get meaning out of it to make an impact. But the way that that VHS technology would morph images that would brighten them mm -hmm. show them in a light that you never experienced them before even if it's like classic stuff that's where it made an impact on me i would say there are two moments that i found particularly moving at the end of one of the episodes i forget which one he has a very i think reverent appreciation of post-war italian cinema the only true cinema he says that hollywood was basically taking over the world after the Second World War, because Europe was basically flattened and nobody was able to create a resistance cinema to this capitalist Hollywood cinema, except the Italians who created this neorealist cinema that really dealt with their reality. And he conveys this in a way that's very direct and I think moving. The other thing that I found moving was his section where he appreciated Alfred Hitchcock. And if I can just quote from his narration a little bit, he says... We forget what Henry Fonda is not completely guilty of and exactly why the American government hired Ingrid Bergman. But we remember a handbag. But we remember a bus in the desert. But we remember a row of bottles, a pair of glasses, a music score, a clutch of keys. Because through them and with them, Alfred Hitchcock succeeded where Alexander, Julius Caesar, Hitler, Napoleon <laughs> failed. He took control of the universe. I love in just in reading that, you, you're kind of with him for a while, and then you're like, oh, right, oh, easy. wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Easy there, but yeah. but I, I kind of like that about him. Like, he's great. And I also like later in that monologue, he says that he's the greatest creator of shapes in, of the 20th century, and he compares him favorably to Cezanne. I mean, who, right. who's, who's thinking like that? Who's making those connections? I mean, somebody who needs to make, uh, you know, big statements to get attention. I mean, Godard <laughs> oh, was the on. original <laughs> editorial, like, headline that you're like, wait, what? I don't believe that. And then you click on it. Or you're like, Hitchcock was the son of Cezanne. And you're like, huh, what? And then you're, uh, you know, snapshotting it and retweeting it. Can you believe this? I mean, the idea of the bottles in the closet and Notorious being you know, an example of him being one of the greatest creators of forms and shapes in in all of arts and comparing that to Cezanne's apples and mm. pears. I mean, I, I just, to me, that contributes something to my understanding of, of this man. Anyway, are you glad you watched it? Yeah, I'm glad I watched it. 
Now let me never watch it again. <laughs> I see. You don't appreciate Godard anymore after this. No, I appreciate Godard. I love that little grifter. Of course we do. <laughs> yeah, I love him. How can you love cinema and not love Godard? Well, you watch Breathless, and that is so immediate. And then when you watch his later films, you I can see what he's trying to do. Even though, like you said, there's a like a, an element of laziness there and almost a fear. But at the same time, he's pressing through and doing something different. How do you react to that feeling of... I guess, defeat that is in all of his stuff after about 1975. Well, I just push through because it's so omnipresent in all of his cinema. There's no joy in his films past 1975. Do you miss that joy? Absolutely, of course. I think that his political message could be made more poignant if there was a little bit of that enjoyment for what he's doing, but he's so burnt out by the system that he doesn't want to do that anymore. And, you know, it's his prerogative. You know what he likes, though? He likes nature. He does love nature and his dog. He likes pretty naked women filmed in natural light. Isn't he currently making a movie? I mean, he's always making a movie, but... Yeah, well, he says he only has two more left in him. Oh, which he's like Tarantino? He's, he's like pointing out a shot? He's 91. Oh my god. So I hope I hope we get at least two more, and hopefully many more. What could they possibly be? I would love for him I to... I think they'll just be like the image book. <laughs> I, I don't think he can hold the camera anymore. I think it'll be him, you know, t- turning the knobs. But what if he ended his film with, like, just a generic 30s-style Poverty Row film? And you'd be like, I gotta rethink everything he's done up until now. I would I would love it if at age 95 he made a completely coherent and just <laughs> yeah. straight and he, down like... It's like him dropping the mic where he's like, I could have done this all along. What, I just decided not to. What if he made a movie in that Bruce Willis direct-to-video factory? <laughs> <laughs> and he just like, he's like, I just wanted to buy myself another cabin. Even Contempt, which is probably his most like mainstream movie, even that one is the product of a man with a broken brain. Is it his most mainstream film? Probably. I mean, it's got big stars. It's in color. It's mm-hmm. kind of got a. I mean, it's got a 25 minute argument scene in it. Great, though. Great. Um, it's probably one of the ones that goes down the easiest. Yeah. I Brussels goes down pretty easy, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> he did something like that, but I don't think so. Yeah. Well, he's, yeah, he's not going to. I mean, he could live to like 110 off the souls of all the other French New Wave filmmakers who passed away. Something I love about Godard is he kept expanding his career. Like his movie Numero Deux from the 70s was originally pitched as the sequel to Breathless. <laughs> That's why it's called Numero Deux, because it's had, number two. It, that's the one with Alain Delon in it, right? No, no, no. That's New Wave. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Numero Deux was the one where it's like, it's an experimental film where a lot of it is about a bourgeois family, and you see it, you, you see several different screens on the screen at the same time, and then it keeps cutting back to Godard in the editing suite, like his head <laughs> in his hands. And that was supposed to be Breathless 2. I love it. Or or yeah, Nouvelle Vague, that movie. Clearly that was pitched as, hey, I'm Jean-Luc Godard, I'm making a movie called Nouvelle Vague. I almost get the sense of that he like there's a little part in him that wants to make those movies it's like um, William S. Burroughs saying that there's nothing more that he wanted to do in his life than write just a straight detective novel and he couldn't uh, yeah maybe have you ever seen detective the one he made in the 80s no okay I don't it's not one of my favorites mm-hmm. but that's another one that was clearly like okay I'm filming in Paris it's called detective it's genre deconstruction Jean-Pierre Lyot is in it Johnny Holiday's in it I'm back baby it's 60s Godard and then of course he made a movie that's just like not fun at all <laughs> <laughs> well even during his like fun period uh made in the USA 
from uh, 1966 that was supposed to be based on Donald E. Westlake novel, the guy who did all of those Parker books. And it's like, well, it's not really there. Well, there's that one, that movie he made for TV in the 80s that was kind of dug up recently called The Rise and Fall of a Small French Film Company. Hmm. It's on Mubi right now. And Jean-Pierre Liaud's in it. And that's one where he accepted a commission from a TV station as part of a series of TV movies based on detective books. And he made this movie that is not about the book. It's about a small film company making the book. And it's all about Sounds how, more interesting to me. It's all about how TV has corrupted cinema. So basically <laughs> he's accepted this TV, this this TV commission to create a thing about how movies are terrible now because of the corrupting influence of television. I mean how did this man keep getting commissions? I that, love That's it. what I want to know. How yeah. did he keep getting commissions? <laughs> I was reading in uh, Cinema Historian, the book, on the path to making the documentary, he took a commission to do a bunch of lectures at a university, and he showed up the first day, and I believe it was a Swiss university, and he just played an interview he had done in French, <laughs> and the students were like, we don't understand what's going on, and then he kept putting back the classes, like, just refusing to do them, until eventually he went, all right, well, I'll give you back the money you gave me and they were like no 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 we want double the money that we gave you you ripped us off okay my favorite story from the richard brody biography and then we'll move on to letters this has nothing to do with anything during the filming of first name carmen one of the actresses in the movie said you know i i want to talk about my character and he said here listen to this this will it will all become clear he gives her a beethoven record she goes she listens to it she comes back the next day she asks him so what's my motivation and he says didn't you listen to the record you're the bass. He's the cello. She's the violinist. <laughs> <laughs> no, my favorite story <laughs> from the Richard Brody book is, you know what it is, because it involves Richard Brody himself. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Tell it. <laughs> well, so Richard Brody, doesn't he arrive at Godard's home? He's supposed to interview him. He, and he does interview him for a day. For a day. And he says, I'll come back the next day. We'll continue our interview. <laughs> and when he comes back the next day, there's a note on the door and Godard's not home that essentially says, you are too dumb for me to continue having a conversation <laughs> with you. <laughs> He gives him the JR treatment. <laughs> I guess Richard Brody's like, what a smart man. He's right. I and, don't deserve to talk And then about. he ran into him at a restaurant later that day because, <laughs> well, it was just like one restaurant in town. So, of course, he was there. Well, that's nice. And I'm glad that Godard could keep trolling that long into his career, appearing, you know, on Google Maps, <laughs> Street Views <laughs> and stuff like that. Jean-Luc Godard, we love him. The official mascot of the Important Cinema Club. So, moving on to letters, which you can send at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Sean White, and it goes, Hey guys, I started listening to your shows soon after moving out of Rochester, then was kicking myself that I had missed out on every Nitrate Picture show. This year I'm making the pilgrimage back to my homeland, so this letter's a little bit late. Are you guys heading this time? Will, did you head over to that? Uh, I did. I was just at the Nitrate Picture Show. Uh, Listen to the post show to hear more about it. Sean, did I meet you there? I met some ICC listeners there. If you were one of them, I'm sorry. I, uh, hope, I'm sorry. I hope I wasn't awkward. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that every question was like, oh, are you Will Sloan? Is Justin around? Yeah. <laughs> like that, that followed that, right? They're like, oh, it's Will Sloan. <laughs> no. Michael and us is Will Sloan. On a side note, I did a month of female filmmakers, and I've come back with a few recommendations to help you hit your quota. <laughs> <laughs> On the art house side of things, I'm a big fan of Maya Darren and Mary Menken. Stephanie Rossman sadly left film because she couldn't escape the Corman Grindhouse Industrial Complex. Bloodbath deserved its place next to a bucket of blood as a great Corman Beatnik movie with an interesting story behind it. Are you a Bloodbath fan? Uh, I have the Blu-ray, never seen it. I mean, the thing about Bloodbath is it's mostly famous for having like four different versions. That's 
that's why like, I haven't seen it is because it's intimidating. But uh, we talked about Maya Darren a little bit on like an experimental film episode we did years ago. I'd also highly recommend The Slow Business of Going by Athena Rachel Sagari. Never heard of that one. I don't know it either. Well, I'll add it to the list. Thanks for all the great podcasts and exposing me to the wonders of Kung Fu filmmaking. <laughs> wow, glad we could do our, our duty of finally introducing people to that kind of stuff. Our next letter is from Robbie. And he goes, It's been a pleasure listening to you two talk about all these great movies to get me through the boring work days. I basically stopped watching movies for several years due to a long period of depression, but listening to the podcast reawakened my dormant passion. I probably would have scoffed at Don't Let the Movies Get You, but now I'm a devoted acolyte of the Moturn Method. You guys have created something really beautiful that has made a lot of people happy and should be proud of that. Well, thank you, Thank you. I was curious if you'd ever do an episode on Hideaki Anno. I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on Shin Godzilla and watching End of Evangelion was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had at the movies. There genuinely hasn't been a day that goes by without me thinking about it, and it has really changed the way I look at my own life and movies as an art form. Also, is there an important Cinema Club Journal Volume 2 in the works? Thanks for reading the, this long letter, and keep up the great work. P.S. Thanks for Will for leading me down the road of Jerry Lewis obsession. A simultaneous blessing and curse for myself and my friends. Well, there will at some point be an important Cinema Club Journal, too. Yeah, it's uh, really on me that I have to sit down and write it with Will. Yeah, it's, it's on me, too. I mean, look, we're both busy guys, but at, at some point we'll do something like that. Will, so one of us maybe have a book that comes out before then? Stay tuned. Who knows? Who knows? Many years in the, in the working, they're excited about it. I know. Well, they don't know what it is, and everyone's going to start to, like hypothesize what could it be what could it be so um uh what else was Hideaki in Anno. oh yeah uh, well i love shin godzilla i don't think you've ever seen anything else that he's done i, I hear people talk about Evangel yeah, evangelion neon, <laughs> neon genesis i hear people talk about it all the time you're and, not gonna watch all of it though it's like 18 episodes plus a movie and then there's four other movies that are a retelling that is radically different that recontextualizes the original series oh, but people love it so much it's really good i only watched it for the first time in its entirety two years ago i think all right well challenge accepted i'm gonna say <laughs> good luck i would say because if we do an episode on that boom those ratings yeah. sky high okay uh and he also did some interesting experiments he did like a mini dv film called love and pop that's like no other film that you will ever see that's like almost offals like because it's like long tracking shots and shot on very very early mini dv and then he did a pop manga adaptation of cutie honey the uh manga slash anime about the woman that turns into a superhero by eating junk food so sounds great sounds exciting love it and do you take any blame for making new jerry lewis fans they the world thought it was over there would be no more jerry lewis fans like he's passed on no one will be checking out his movies unless they grew up with them but thanks to you people are finally rediscovering him i think you're giving me too much credit <laughs> i think lots of people love jerry lewis uh what i will just say though is you go on letterboxd for the movie cracking up <laughs> it's all you're doing anyone who has given it five stars and there are a lot of them they all follow me so i'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> you give me too much credit but also it's all me i'm just saying that particular movie i had something to do with and speaking of moturn um, we're gonna remind people you gotta buy magic spot if you haven't watched it yet do it magic spot's a great movie mm -hmm. and if you have any other letters for us send them at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com what are we doing on our patreon this week will well uh well last week i don't think we talked about this we talked about joe damato's movie caligula the untold story we're back in caligula exploitation we did the original caligula now we're doing the ripoff and just love talking about joe damato and this week we watched two classic well only one of them is a classic <laughs> two old 1950s monster movies the beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms the movie that inspired godzilla and 
the, inspired. And the movie that nobody likes, Monster from Green Hell. That was recently put out by the film detective on a brand spanking new Blu-ray. So we had the Blu-ray, we had to watch it. So you will hear our thoughts on 50s giant monster movies and sundry other topics. At patreon.com slash the important cinema club. Next week, sellout months continues, Will. What are we doing? James Cameron. <laughs> what movies are we going to watch? True Lies. Uh, let's do it. Because that's, I think most people would consider it one of his lesser films. Yeah. And... Yeah, which one do we do? We do the original Terminator. I don't think we ever talked about that, have we? Let's we do did Terminator Two on a Patreon. Oh, I forget that. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah, Terminator. Or do you want no Avatar? I don't want to watch Avatar. Oh, <laughs> you gotta watch Avatar. All right, don't you? fuck. All right. <laughs> That's the one people they're hungry for Avatar. You watch that trailer, you're getting all hyped. What's What's more to say about it? Everyone's talked about Avatar. <sighs> I mean, I haven't watched it since I saw it theatrically. Have you? <laughs> I didn't enjoy it when I watched it theatrically. Oh, I want to watch Terminator. Okay, we'll talk <laughs> right, about this off Terminator mic. Terminator. We'll, we'll okay. watch. Off, we'll talk off mic. Listen, if I gotta watch Avatar, I'm dragging you down with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not taking any of those political left wing podcasts like, oh, you know, it's the, the greatest new movie ever. It's boring. It has a boring lead. I can't wait to spend three hours being able to say that I think it's boring. <laughs> An opinion that you already it's know. Still boring. <laughs> still don't like it. Anyway. So that's what we're doing next week. Until then, I'm Justin the Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Six hundred patron subscribers by episode three hundred is what we're trying to do, and we can't do it without your help. So if you are not a Patreon subscriber yet, please go to Patreon.com/slash The Important Cinema Club. Become a Patreon subscriber now. I haven't figured it out yet, but I know I will decide a super secret special gift that will only be available to Patreon subscribers before we hit episode three hundred. And now I'd like to thank some new Patreon subscribers who include Patrick Goldie, Ted Kelly, Joe Signorelli, Brian, Adam Sorson, Luke Mosher, Neil McWeeny, Kemble McClure, Alec Thomas, S, and Maria L. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We could not do it without you. Will, you recently uh, had a trip to the George Eastman House in beautiful Rochester, New York. That's right. It was my annual trip to the Nitrate Picture Show. At the George Eastman House, uh, they have one of the world's largest collection of nitrate film prints, but they also get a bunch of nitrate film prints from all over the world. Before, say, the mid-1950s, all movies were printed on nitrate film stock and shot on nitrate film stock, which... Uh, is highly flammable. They eventually phased it out for safety film stock. It creates its own oxygen if you light it on fire, so you cannot put it out with water. Yeah, it's it's a bad situation. There have been many nitrate vault fires over the years. A few too many people smoking cigarettes when they were in the projection booth. In Quebec, anyone under the age of, uh, I think maybe 16, was banned until the 70s from seeing movies because... There was a horrible fire at a children's show, even though that the fire didn't kill the children. It was the stampede outside of the theater that killed kids. So, uh, understandably, yes. this technology was phased out for something safer after a mere 60 years. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but if you're crazy and you want to risk death and let's you won't risk you death won't, yeah i mean these are you know the nitrate picture show the george eastman house these are professionals who are doing it who have every, not smoking over yeah, the projector every safety precaution is in place but if you want to risk certain death uh you will see that the film looks a little bit different i don't want to overstate it because you can spend too much time it's like, like squinting. watching 4k <laughs> but it actually kind of is it's like it has the best of both worlds of like the warmth of film and the sharpness of 4k but I, what's especially fun about the festival, 
fun. What what I think what I think's fun. Mm-hmm. If you're a freak like me and you think it's fun, is like these prints are historic documents. They have not made nitrate film prints since the 1950s. So, you know, last time we went, they played Lage d'Or, and it was Henri Langlois' personal print. And who knows? Like Jean Luc Godard himself probably watched that probably very same print that were played all the time at the Cinémathèque Française. And this year, David O. Selznick, the producer kept all of his archives in very good condition. So you can pretty much count on every There's year. There's always going to be one uh, David O. Selznick picture that'll play. Yeah, they played Rebecca last time, and this time they played Portrait of Jenny. And, you know, it's just amazing that this print was in his personal archives. This year, I mean, I had a good time this year. Uh, probably the best movie, the one I enjoyed the most, was Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. A uh, little, little movie called The Rope. You heard of that one? Yeah, I have. I mean, fantastic to watch with an audience. I highly recommend Hitchcock with an audience. Every suspenseful moment, every humorous beat really pops. And what's great is it, he's always playing yeah. in the repertoire cinema. They'll be playing Rope at some point. I would say, at least in my opinion, there were fewer kind of like five-star masterpieces mm. than there were in other years. But some interesting curios. There was a movie called Trail of the Hawk, which was... What's that guy's name? Edward Dimitrik. Yeah. So he he went on to direct the Kane Mutiny, but he started his career in really low budget shit like this. And I mean, he's also famous as one of the ones who, during the blacklist, who named names after standing with his, uh, you know, pals. Ooh. Well, anyway, he made this not very good Western, which was shot like just static, you know, terrible looking movie. But then a couple of years later, this guy called Ramblin' Tommy something or other, who was just like a showman and an entrepreneur bought it and shot a bunch of scenes of himself with a ventriloquist dummy <laughs> that he spliced into the movie. So it was fun to see that. It was fun to see Lon Chaney's only sound film. Uh, there was a Mickey O'Neill movie, uh, you know, various, various good things. Mm-hmm. But no, like Nightmare Alley. We're like, whoa, there were no like huge revelations to me, mm-hmm. but there were a lot of things that I enjoyed. Uh, and I also went to see Louise Brooks's grave. <laughs> Finally. Yeah. Next time you saw her apartment uh, a couple years before her grave, next time you're digging her up. That's right. She's going to be the new co-host. <laughs> I mean, she's so sassy based on the essays that she wrote. That's right. So you're going to attend next year, of course. I hope so. And will they run out of nitrate prints? Yes, like, you they look, will eventually. You look and it's like, they're shrinking, they're shrinking. There's nothing they can do about it. I mean... Yeah, the clock is ticking on all these prints. It won't be around probably 20 years from mm. now. Every introduction, they talk about like all the heroic efforts that had to be done to make these prints playable. They order in prints. People send prints that turns out are not playable. Oh, that sucks. I mean, they're just heartbreaking. I wish they wouldn't tell these stories. These heartbreaking stories of like, you know, we had this amazing silent film, this great silent film that was in perfect condition, but the American distributor put in English intertitles and that film shrunk. Oh, so you can't play it at all. I know, but the rest of it looks great. So yeah, awful. I mean, you hear that and it's like, I wish you didn't tell me that. <laughs> yeah, don't tell that. Ignorance is bliss. And you did miss Pinocchio in case people, before people I start didn't messaging see, us. Uh, I didn't see Pinocchio, but whatever. <laughs> Overrated, right? Well, <laughs> we're trying to make Will feel better here. Yeah. So, uh, Nitrate Picture Show, mark your calendars next year. I'm sure it's going to happen probably one more time, if that. Maybe Justin will come out again. Yeah, if I have the money to go. If I he has the money, we'll, we'll figure it out. 